Hebrews. And let me just uh, mention a couple of things as you're turning there. Um, uh, this Tuesday, we are celebrating uh, our, uh, the, um, the founding of our nation, July the 4th. And um, a lot of times on the Sunday before July 4th, we uh, sing some patriotic songs or those type of things. We're going to do that next week. Next week, um, uh, we are going to have a um, uh, Captain Jackie Karch, who is a uh, United States Army. He's a captain of the United States Army. He's a chaplain over at uh, Fort... Um, what is it? Over in San Antonio? Yeah. What is it? Fort Sam Houston. Yeah, maybe. Well, anyway, he's a captain in the Army, and he's going to be preaching next week. Um, captain Karch is the brother of one of our field ministers who's serving a life sentence out there in, uh, in the Clemens unit. And uh, he's going to be here, and uh, so I asked him if he would come and preach. And so next Sunday, um, we're, going to, uh, we're going to hear from Captain Karch, and we're going to, uh, we're going to celebrate uh, what God has done uh, here in this nation. It seemed like there was one other thing that I was going to mention, and at the moment, I can't remember. I do want to, uh, I want to uh, remind all of you guys um, of, and those of you who are my age or maybe just a little bit younger, y'all remember one of the greatest TV shows ever, you know, in the history. Uh, it was something called Hee Haw. Anybody, anybody remember Hee Haw? I mean, seriously, I know. Those of you who don't, okay, you just... Look it up. I mean, you can find some. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's my kind of humor, and, uh, and things on Hee Haw, I think, are hilariously funny. And not everybody else did, but I do. And uh, anyway, I, I want to tell you one of the stories, and it's one of my favorite stories from, uh, from that uh, show. Uh, remember Archie Campbell, and uh, he, he played a, a lot of different characters on there. But one, he was a, um, uh, he was a uh, barber. And so the, the setting was in, was in Archie's barber shop, and Roy Clark, who was also another regular on the show, was sitting in the, was sitting in the chair, and, and uh, Slim and, and all the other guys are sitting around. And uh, Archie says um, to Roy, he says, I guess you heard my news. And Roy says, well, is it good news or bad news? And Archie said, well, my great uncle passed away. Roy said, oh, it's bad news then. He said, no, no, it's good news because, see, I was his favorite nephew, and he left me $50,000. And Roy said, oh, that's good news. And Archie said, no, it's bad news because the, the, the revenue or the tax man came, and they took away half of it. I had to pay half of it in taxes. And Roy said, oh, that's bad news. And, and Archie said, no, no, it's good news because, see, I had half of it left, and, and I'd always wanted to fly, so with that with the half of that that was left, I bought me an airplane and took flying lessons. And Roy said, well, that's good news then. Archie said, no, it's bad news because, see, the other day I was out flying that thing and I was doing tricks and it turned upside down and I fell out of that rascal. Roy said, you fell out. That's bad news. Archie said, no, it's good news because I was wearing a parachute. I mean, you know. And Roy said, oh, that's good news. Archie said, no, it's bad news because the parachute wouldn't open. I pulled the ripcord, it wouldn't open. <laughs> and Roy said, oh, that is bad news. Archie said, no, no, it's good news because I was wearing a reserve parachute. I, I had two parachutes on. Roy said, oh, that's good news. Archie said, no, it's bad news because that chute wouldn't open either. <laughs> had two chutes that wouldn't open. 
Roy said, oh, that's bad news. Archie said, no, it's good news because I was falling. Directly where I was falling, it was out in the countryside, and a farmer had stacked up a bunch of big, fluffy hay. There was this big, fluffy haystack. I was falling directly forward towards it. Roy said, oh, that's good news. Archie said, no, that's bad news because right in the middle of that haystack, there was a giant pitchfork. It was sticking straight up. Roy said, oh, that's bad news. Roy said, no, it's good news because I missed the haystack. <clears throat> Thank you for laughing, sister. There's, a, <clears throat> there's, just a, there's a little bit more to that story. I'm going to stop it right there because I don't know that everybody would appreciate the rest of it. But, uh, but anyway, uh, the point is not just that I like corny humor, which is true, but the point is that you really can't know or understand or appreciate good news unless you know what the bad news is, right? I mean, I mean, is something good or bad? You don't know unless you know the other side of it. You don't know whether it's good news or whether it's bad news unless you know what the other side is. So it might be good news or it might be bad news. You've got to figure it out. You know, the Bible says or it teaches or preaches Good news. I mean, I consider myself a preacher of good news. The word gospel means good news. And so what we do is we preach the gospel. We preach good news. And the good news is Jesus, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then, and then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul says, hey, I want to tell you, or I want to remind you of what I share with you at the very first, the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to scripture. He was buried, rose again on the third day according to scripture, and he was seen by many, and last of all, he was seen by me. In other words, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and for the forgiveness of sin and all that. That's the good news. But the question that I'd like you to think about today is why is that good news? What makes the good news the good news? And the answer is the bad news. Now, what is the bad news? Well, the bad news, the good news is God loves you. Praise God. Bad news is the wrath of God is poured out upon all sin. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the apostle Paul wrote, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness, an unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the bad news. The wrath of God is poured out upon all sin and upon all sinners. So if you stand before God in your sin, the wrath of God is directed against you. And beloved, that is bad news. And what I want to do in this sermon this morning is convince you of that. The good news is that Jesus removes our sin. If we come to him by faith, we trust him, we put our, our faith and trust in him. But really, the good news isn't good unless you know what the bad news is. And the problem that a lot of us have, that maybe that most people have, is that we really don't appreciate or maybe we don't even believe in the bad news. We, we certainly don't want to hear about the wrath of God. When was the last time you heard about, you heard a sermon on the wrath of God? Well, if you were here several years ago, I preached, 
I preached a sermon on the wrath of God, and I might have told the same story about the good news, bad news thing, and you, some of you might remember that. But, but what happens, but what happens is, is, is people are kind of like, hey, tell me about God's love. I want to know how much God loves me. I want to know what he's going to do for me. I want to know about his healing and his grace and his love and his mercy and his comfort and his peace and all those things. That is, give me the sweet tender side of God. Give me the good stuff about God. You know, it's going to make me feel good. It's going to make me happy. And what happens is, is we kind of view God or our view of God becomes like a doting grandfather. And beloved, I'm guilty. I am a doting grandfather. And what that means is, is that my grandkids can do no wrong and they get whatever they want. When they're at G-Dad's house, G-Dad is a yes. G-Dad is a yes man. Now, BB is the one that says no right? So she kind of moderates that. G-dad is yes. You want ice cream for breakfast? We're going to have ice cream for breakfast. I mean, I am a doting grandfather. And what happens is, is a lot of us think of God in that same way. You know, that God is, is, he's just a yes. He's like a yes granddaddy, right? I mean, whatever I want, whatever I need, whatever I'm doing, God's happy with it and God's good with it and God's good with me. He's my friend and he loves me and everything else like that. So whatever I do is cool. But beloved, the reality is, is that any view of God that does not include the wrath of God is incomplete. And quite honestly, you cannot understand or appreciate the good news of Jesus if you don't understand and appreciate the bad news of God's wrath. In fact, without the wrath of God, the love of God ultimately becomes meaningless. And I want you to notice that God's love and his wrath are basically two sides of the same coin. If you receive the wrath of God, you reject, you reject the love of God. Or if you reject the love of God, you receive the wrath of God. Or if you, uh, uh, if you receive the love of God, you reject the wrath of God. I mean, you understand how you get either one of the, or the other. And it is the wrath of God that helps us to understand how good the good news is or how great the love of God is and what God has done for us. Now, the book of Hebrews here is all about Jesus. And it is good news. And over and over again, he tells us all about Jesus and why Jesus is good news. Jesus is superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the law. He is the great high priest. He uh, is the perfect sacrifice. He, um, uh, he perfects our consciences. He perfects us. And he is sanctifying us. And on and on and on and on again, all the good stuff about Jesus, he tells us, uh, you know, how great Jesus is for us. But if you really pay attention to, to, to the writer here of Hebrews, he keeps warning us over and over and over again about the bad news. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, he said, If the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. In other words, if you set the salvation of Christ aside, if you neglect it or refuse it, how do you think you're going to escape? Escape from what? Escape from the wrath of God. In the next chapter, in Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, he says, and this is God speaking, so I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Now he was speaking of those who rejected him out in the wilderness. And he said, okay, you don't want to follow me? Then you're not going to enter into the, the rest. And so then, or into the Sabbath rest or the rest of God. 
And uh, so uh, the writer of Hebrews then makes this comment in verse 12 of Hebrews 3. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Now hear the warning. Watch out. Be careful. Pay attention. There's good news. Praise God. But there's also bad news. And the bad news, you need to know the bad news if you're really going to appreciate the good news. Here in the 10th chapter of Hebrews, the writer has laid out again how Jesus is the perfect sacrifice and exactly what he has done for us. Verse 14, he has perfected us and we are being sanctified So that perfection is complete. The sanctification is continuing on. And it is the fact that we are not what we were, but but we're better than what we were, is a testimony that we have been perfected. That's the assurance of salvation for God's children. But here, when he gets down to verse 26, he brings this warning back up. And he's warning us or sharing with us the bad news. Look down at verse 26. For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses, how much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then this final comment. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now this is just a reality check. This is just for those of us who all we really want to hear about is the love of God and the goodness of God and the grace of God and everything. And we're happy with that. Don't say anything. Don't talk about, we don't need to know anything about the wrath of God. Uh, We just want to talk about the good, grandfatherly type uh, love of God. This is that reality check. It is a reminder of where we've come from. And it's a reminder of where we're going if, if we have trusted Christ, if we put our faith and trust in him, if we have truly appropriated or appreciated the good news of Jesus. So what he's going to give us here is a clear picture of God's wrath. And what I want to do is I just want to share three things with you here from just one verse here, verse 27, uh, that details for us the wrath of God. Now, this might not include everything about the wrath of God, but I think it's enough. It certainly was enough to get my attention. And my prayer is, is that it gets everybody's attention. And if you have not responded to the good news, that is, if you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus, then today you will turn from being a child of wrath to a child of love. Three things about God's wrath, and I've entitled this the terrifying hands of God, and I, I get it actually from, the last, from that last verse, verse 31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the, um, uh, of the living God. 
the terrifying hands of God. God's wrath is, first of all, number one, it is legal. It is legal. And by that, I mean just or right. If you look at verse 27, he says, a terrifying, there is a terrifying expectation of judgment. A terrifying expectation of judgment. That word judgment there is a legal term. It refers to what takes place in a courtroom in which a judge is sitting behind the bench and the accused is standing before him and all the evidence is presented and then he pronounces judgment, either innocent or guilty. Because judgment can go either way, right? But what he says here, and he's talking about those, and we'll see who he's talking about here in a minute, who, is, who should be terrified. He's talking about those outside of Christ. He says there is a terrifying expectation of judgment. Now, beloved, listen to me. The Bible teaches very clearly God is a judge. He is a righteous judge in Psalm 9, for example, the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he judges the world with righteousness. He executes judgment. He executes judgment on the nations with fairness. So here is God, the God of all the universe. He is a righteous judge. And it says that he exercises judgment on all the nations. And beloved, you and I, you and I are part of... All the nations. Thank you, friend. So who does he exercise judgment on? He exercises judgment on the world, and you and I are part of the world, meaning that every one of us, sooner or later, will stand in front of this righteous judge. And it is a terrifying thing to stand before the righteous judge. Why? Why is it terrifying? Or why should we be terrified? And the answer is, is because we're all sinners. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, which means we are all guilty. And the wages of sin is death. And if God judges righteously or rightly on all of us, then we're all going to be condemned. We're all going to be condemned to death. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3.25 said, The wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Hear that word favoritism? That means God is impartial. God does not look at you and say, well, you're a pretty good looking young man. I tell you what, we'll go easy on you. Or you've got the right daddy. You know, in our country, if you have the right last name or your daddy is, say, president or something else, then you don't really have an expectation of judgment, right? I mean, if you have enough money, you can hire a slick logger and you can get off. If you come from the right side of the tracks, maybe you don't necessarily have an expectation that, that you are going to be judged rightly or righteously. Maybe somehow, some way you're going to get off. If your daddy is the right man. You know, my dad was Seely Smith. And I know some of y'all remember Brother Seely. He was a good man. You know, he loved the Lord. He was a, you know, he was a good preacher. He was a good minister of the gospel and everything else. And I'm kind of thinking, you know, that ought to count for something. When I stand before, you know, a holy, righteous God, I think that probably what I'm going to say, well, you know, my daddy was a Baptist preacher. <laughs> my daddy was Brother Seely, right? Well, when the Scripture says that God shows no favoritism, what that means is it doesn't matter who your daddy was. I've been told many, many times, you know, uh, I've 
talking to somebody about their faith and tell me about what Christ has done in your life. I can't tell you how many times somebody has said to me, well, you know, my, uh, my grandfather was a Baptist preacher. <laughs> really? Praise God. Man, I, I thank the Lord for Baptist preacher granddaddies. But what about you? <laughs> Have you put your faith in Jesus? Because let me tell you, standing before God with a Baptist preacher grandpappy is not going to make any difference in the world. Because God shows no favoritism. And there are no exclusions there. There's no, uh, uh, there's no uh, loopholes. There's no, uh, I mean, God judges rightly and righteously. He doesn't look on the outside. He looks on the inside. He looks on the heart. And God does not show favoritism. So you're not going to be able to plead, uh, you know, that you came to church every Sunday for 20 years or you taught Sunday school or you're a deacon or anything else like that. The, the favoritism means that God doesn't look on those type of things. There's only one question. What about Jesus in your life? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? And the problem with God is not only does he not show favoritism, that means, you know, external things don't count, but he's omniscient, meaning he knows everything. He's not going to forget anything, not going to overlook anything. Hey, God, uh, you know, maybe uh, don't pay attention to this. Don't be watching this. God's not that way. He knows it all. He sees it all. He hears it all. And beloved, you're not going to be able to talk your way out of that. In the book of Revelation, chapter 20, the, uh, uh, the revelator, John, says this I, in verse, 20, or ch verse 11, chapter 20. He says, I saw a great white throne. And one seated on it, and earth and heaven fled from his presence. There was no place to be found for them. And I also saw the dead, great and small. Watch the great and small there. Meaning it doesn't matter who you are, what you are, how much money you had, where you came from, what color skin. Great and small. Everybody standing before the throne. And books were opened. And a book, another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to to their works by what was written in the books. Now, you understand what, what's happening there? So there's this great white throne judgment, and everybody who has ever lived is going to stand before that throne. And it says books were opened, and these are the books of works. Everything you've ever done, everything that you've ever said, every thought that you've ever had, good and bad, indifferent, is all being recorded in these books. You say, well, I'm not sure about that. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, okay? And it says the books are going to be opened and you're going to be judged. Everyone is going to be judged according to what's written in the books. In other words, we're judged according to our work. In other words, I'm going to have to answer for every sin in my life. Every sinner standing before, uh, before a holy and righteous God as those books are open. We're going to give an answer. For our lives. And if you think somehow, somewhere you're going to be able to miss that or get out of that, that's just wishful thinking. God is a holy and righteous God. He is just. And because he is just, I cannot expect that my sin is going to be overlooked or it's going to be set aside, it's going to be forgotten, or he's just going to pat me on the back and say it's okay because you're you and you are the preacher or you're whatever. No, none of that stuff counts because God is a holy, righteous God. His wrath is legal. It is just. It is just. 
Second thing about God's wrath, it is emotional. It's emotional. And this is the one when I began to understand this, this really got me. Look again at that 27th verse. He says, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire. The fury of a fire. You see that word fury? The word fury is, is an emotional term. Literally, it's the zeal of fire. The zeal of fire. Or it's a fiery passion. What it basically means is God is not just a little bit upset with sin. God's not like, well, I don't like that. God is passionate about punishing sin. That fury of the fire (coughs) means that God is going to punish sin, and in punishing sin, it is going to be his pleasure. You know, the Bible talks about the pleasure of God in pouring wrath out upon sin. It is God's pleasure to punish sin. And beloved, we need to understand this. It is very, very important for us, I think, because we have a tendency, you know, for the most part, to think that sin is not any big deal. You know, I mean, what is, what, if, if I were just to get you to start listing some sins, you might think, well, telling a lie, not a big deal. Maybe, you know, what if you take something that's not yours? That's called theft. Thou shalt not steal. Okay, maybe. You know, I mean, killing somebody is bad. We think people ought to go. To, but, but, you know, for the most part, when we think about sin, it's really not that big a deal. In fact, in our culture today, there really nothing is sin anymore, is it? I mean, it's just all kind of you do what you want. I'll do what I want. If it's good for me, that's cool. If it's good for you, whatever, right? But, you know, there are some things, some sins to be passionate about. Not too long ago, <clears throat> well, it's been some time ago, I was, uh, I was uh, sitting in uh, room five over here on one morning when all the coffee drinkers were there. And, um, and if you really want to learn some stuff, just come out in the morning and sit around, drink coffee with these guys, and uh, you can get some education. But uh, sometimes good, sometimes not. But anyway, I mentioned in uh, where we're sitting there that I'd heard about a grandfather that had sexually abused his grandchildren, his granddaughters. He, he had sexually abused his granddaughters. And, uh, you know, I made a comment, something about, you know, a guy like that, he needs to be taken out and whipped. And he ought to get a big bull whip and just beat the tar out of that guy. And, you know, every one of those guys in that room, and they were all grandfathers, they said, uh-uh, that'd be too good for him. Somebody do something like that, they need to be strung up. I mean, you know, and then, you know, or crucified or whatever it was. I mean, what I found out, and I I was agreeing with them, we were passionate about that particular sin. We might not have got too excited about, you know, somebody telling a lie or maybe cheating on their taxes or anything like that, but somebody that would abuse a child, let's string them up. Man, we got passionate about punishing that particular sin, punishing it with death. And here's the thing, beloved, God is that passionate about every sin. There's not just a few sins that God is like, okay, get them. No. I mean, every sin, Scripture teaches, the wrath of God is poured out upon all sin. All sin, every sin, is a big deal with God. Every sin you've ever committed is a big deal with God. And so you say, okay, well, all right, 
I got that God hates sin, but he loves the sinner, right? I mean, after all, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, and that's me. God loves. But the problem is with that is if I stand before God in my sin, and God hates sin, and his wrath is poured out upon sin, that means God hates me, and God hates, and God's wrath is directed on me. Well, what if all I do is just one little sin? The wrath of God, the passionate, fiery wrath of God is on me. And the love of God does not deflect that. The love of God does not remove the wrath of God from the sinner. You know, I entitled this, this sermon, The Terrifying Hands of God, back in uh, 1741 in uh, the colonies in New England. Uh, a revival broke out. It's called the First Great Awakening here uh, in, uh, uh, in what became the United States. And uh, uh, one particular preacher, a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards, was instrumental in, uh, in bringing about revival. He was a Presbyterian uh, preacher, and he was preaching in a little church uh, in Northampton, I think. And, um, and what was interesting about Jonathan Edwards was he was nearsighted, and he manuscript his sermon. And he kind of spoke in a monotone. So when he preached, he had to bend over like this, and he... He spoke in a monotone. But, um, but it was said that when Edwards preached, his, the power of God would just fall. And, uh, and, you know, there'd be grown men crying out, you know, God have mercy. His famous sermon he entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He actually got his title from this passage of Scripture. He he uh, used another passage to, to preach from in due uh, time, their foot will slide. And he, he basically described, you know, a sinner like a, his foot on a banana peel and he's about ready to slip off into hell. Listen, this is a quote from Edward's sermon. Listen to this. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart. And strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God. Without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. In other words, he said, this is it. It's like God has got this, the, the wrath of God is like a, a bow and arrow. And God has pulled the arrow back and he's pointed at your heart. And the only thing that stops the arrow from flying is just the good pleasure of God. And the only expectation that a sinner can have is that soon that arrow will fly and pierce your heart and your blood will be spilled. And that will be it because the wrath of God is poured out upon all sin. And it is the fury fire of God that is directed towards all sin. This is the wrath of God of God, the emotional wrath of God. So his wrath is legal. It is emotional. One other thing I want you to see in this passage about God's wrath, it is physical. It is physical. Again, in verse 27, he says, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. You see that word consume? It literally means to engulf are to encircle. So the wrath of God, the passionate, legal, 
wrath of God swallows up the sinners in the fire of judgment. And, and this word consume doesn't mean to annihilate. It, it, it means to completely surround forever. And what he's referring to here is hell. Is the fires of hell. Yes, there is a place called hell. And it wasn't created for people. It was created for the devil and his angels. But in hell, sinners will experience the wrath of God for eternity. What happens is some people say, well, Brother Greg, come on. I mean, really? Hell? You know. You don't really believe in hell, do you? I mean, it's kind of hard to believe in. I mean, what would be the point, I guess? You know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how easy it is to believe in heaven. You know, everybody believes in heaven, and everybody's going to heaven, aren't they? I mean, you ever been to a funeral or you ever talked to anybody whose loved one died? Might have been the sorriest rascal in the world, but they're in heaven now looking down over us. I mean, you know, that's just the way it is, right? I mean, uh, I've been told one time in particular by a lady whose husband didn't have really anything to do with the church, didn't have anything to do with the Lord, really had, he, he was not a believer, he's not a Christian. And I was, he had died and I was talking to her and she said, well, you know, if, if my husband's not in heaven, nobody's going to be in heaven. Because he was a good man. He took care of her. He watched over her and provided for her. He's a good provider. He's a good daddy. He's good. All these things, right? And if he's not in heaven, nobody's going to be in heaven. And that, that, that really is the way it is. I mean, that, that's the way most people believe. I mean, you know, you, you, you can know somebody and they can be, like I said, you know, the worst rascal that ever lived. But now they're in heaven. They're looking down over us and they're watching over us. And they're here with us today. And so... Can we, can we really believe in a literal hell? But you know, if you think about it, if there's no hell, then why would there be a heaven? What would be the point, I guess? I mean, so God just created us, and maybe, you know, I heard somebody say, well, I, I went through hell on earth, so I know I'm going to heaven, right? Because hell was right here on this earth, and so we must be going to heaven. You know, there's a lot of people who believe in neither heaven or hell. They believe in what's called annihilation. And basically, what that means is, is when I die, that's it, right? So you live, you die, and that's it. And that's very popular, and, and the reason people go there is so we don't have to deal with it. If I, if I believe that, that I just die and that's it, then I don't even have to think about heaven. I don't have to think about hell. But you know, the Bible teaches that there is a literal heaven, praise God, and there's a literal hell. Isn't that interesting? In fact, you might say, did Jesus believe in hell? <laughs> in uh, the 19th or 16th chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus tells a story about a dude named Lazarus. He's a poor man, and then uh, there's a rich man, and we don't really get his name. Uh, he's called Dives, and uh, they lived, and they died, and, uh, and Lazarus went to heaven. He went to Abraham's bosom in heaven, and uh, the rich man ended up in the fire of hell, and he was in torment down there. And, you know, he, he called out, you know, to Abraham, hey, can you send Lazarus down to tell, hey, maybe he could dip his finger and, you know, just kind of give me a little bit of relief here. And if you can't do that, could he go and tell my brothers so that they won't come here to hell? And, and Jesus said, that's not possible. You know, G, you know what Jesus taught in that message? He taught that hell is a real place. It is a place of torment and suffering. It is an inescapable place. And it is a place of consciousness. That is, those who are in hell 
know where they are. They know why they are there. And they are suffering incredible for their sin. And that's reality. That's what Jesus taught. That hell is the eternal destiny for every sinner who remains in their sin. Remember Revelation 20 talked about that great white throne judgment. We're all going to stand before God and the books are going to be opened. Down in verse 13 of that chapter, it says, The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire, the fury, the fury, the furious fire of God's wrath directed on all sin. In your sin, you stand before God in your sin and your eternal destiny. And beloved, this is, this is what the Bible says. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. The eternal destiny of a sinner who remains in his or her sin is the lake of fire forever in hell. That is the reality, the physical reality of hell, of the wrath of God. Okay, so that's the bad news. The wrath of God is just. The wrath of God is emotional. So don't think you're going to worm your way out of it or say, well, maybe it wasn't that bad. I'm not that bad of a person. I'm a pretty good person. And the wrath of God is physical. It's real. So, it's terrifying. It's the terrifying reality. He says again in that 31st verse, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But who is it terrifying for? If you look back at verse 29 there, he says, how much worse punishment do you think will, will deserve, uh, will the one deserve who has trampled on the Son of God. You know that trampled on the Son of God means somebody who has understood or heard the gospel but just set it aside. This is unbelievers, okay? Who should be terrified in the hands of an angry God? Unbelievers, right? If you've taken the Son of God and the blood of God, you heard about Jesus, died for you, but you just disregard it, set it aside. Those who reject Jesus ought to be terrified of one day standing before the righteous judge because everything that I described is going to be the reality for them. But you know, it's not just those. There's not just the unbelievers. There's also the pretenders. Look on down in that 29th verse. It says, And who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? Now, this is somebody who maybe goes to church, who... Uh, who kind of puts on the show, or, you know, maybe they even taught Sunday school. I mean, you know, I mean, there's a whole lot of things. Might have even been a preacher. I've heard of preachers getting saved. Because you can be anything in this world and be lost as a goose. These are pretenders. These are folks who, who you know, just tried to, uh, through self-sanctification or self-aggrandizement uh, or whatever it is, tried to make everybody think that, you know, I got this right. They were trying to convince themselves. They were unable to convince God. And so unbelievers ought to be terrified in the face of God's wrath. Pretenders are those who pretend to be believers but are not. And he says they profane. That means, that means they scorn or they treat with contempt. 
not really trusting Jesus, trusting self-righteousness, trusting myself, trusting, uh, uh, trusting the things I do, not trusting Christ, just pretending to be a believer, but not really believing. These are the folks that Jesus talked about back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 when he said, on that day, there will be those who will say to me, Lord, Lord, hey, Lord, we prophesied in your name. I did all these things in your name. I was this good. I did all of this in Jesus the saddest, most tragic verses in all the Bible as Jesus looks at a unrepentant sinner and says, depart from me. I never knew you. Depart where? The fire of God's righteous wrath. Depart from me. I never knew you. Beloved, the bad news is really bad news. For unbelievers and pretenders. And you know, the sad truth is, is that hell is very easy to go to. What do you got to do to go to hell? Nothing. Nothing. You don't have to do anything. Just keep on living the way you are. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. means we're all sinners. And what we deserve, the wages of sin, death, we all deserve hell. You don't have to do anything. You can just keep living your life exactly the way you are, and you can go straight to hell. For eternity, the righteous wrath of God. What does it take to escape hell? And here's the good news. Because you see, God didn't create hell for you or any other human being. He created it for the devil and his minions. It's available if you want to go to hell. But if you would put your faith and trust in Jesus, because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from hell. Saved for eternity. Saved for heaven. That's what that means. That's what salvation is. See, salvation is meaningless if you don't understand the bad news, if you don't understand there's a hell. But when you understand... That by your sin, you deserved an eternity in the fiery pit of hell. But Jesus, in grace and mercy and love, gave himself. So all the wrath of God is poured out upon Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Something has to be done with your sin. And either you'll bear it yourself or Jesus bears it for you. And if you will give Jesus your life, he'll take your sin. And in forgiveness and life, now you'll stand before God. And when God opens those books and you're judged according to your works, and then there's this other book over here. You know what that book is? It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And everyone, it says, whose name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. If your name's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, eternity in hell. Name written in the Lamb's book of life, eternity in heaven. How do I get my name written in the Lamb's book of life? Only by the blood of Jesus. Only by the blood of Jesus. The shed blood of Jesus. When I give him my life, he takes it and he writes my name. And for eternity, I'm saved. That's the good news, beloved. And beloved, that is good news. I don't care who you are. My question for you today do you know this Jesus? Have you met this Jesus? Have you given him your heart and your life? If you'll take him and receive him by faith, for we are saved by grace through faith. And if you'll trust him with your life, I will tell you on the authority of God's holy word that hell 
is not for you. But he's got something so much more. And he'll give it to you if you'll just receive it. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus today that as our hearts are convicted by your word, Lord, I know that I I can't do anything or say anything that's going to make any difference to anybody, but Lord, you, you do and you can. And Father, your word has been opened before us today, and I pray our hearts, Lord, would would be pricked that we, Lord, would not be able to leave this place without being able to say, I've met Jesus. And I'm forgiven, saved. Lord, I pray that as your grace flows freely from this place, that you would find in here everyone ready to receive and to walk in it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, brothers and sisters.